Do you got a holiday drive in front of you? Are you trying to get into shape during the lockdown? Well, I have great news for you. My history podcast, Raise the Dead, now has both of its seasons in audiobook form. Get the full story of the 1960 election and how it connects to the 2016 election. Get the full story of 1964 and how it connects to the run-up to the election we just witnessed. Do it seamlessly in audiobook form, including a bonus episode in the first season and a conversation with Tom Merritt in the second season that lays out the processes behind making the show and what you can expect from the next season. It's all available on Audible. Head to raisethedeadpodcast.com slash complete to get both seasons. Use those Audible credits, people. Raisethedeadpodcast.com slash complete. The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Michael Bolick, The Joe Q Car Show, Frank Latuka, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Jim Wright, Will Harris, and Craig. Politics, 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 politics. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for December 9th, 2020. My name is Justin Robert Young. We got a doozy here for you. Rarely do I get to say this sentence. Y'all read that crazy Chinese spy story? Because if you have, we're going to talk about it. And if you haven't, there's a crazy Chinese spy story out there. And it involves some names. Some names, especially around my neck of the woods. Very interesting. We also have the latest on Donald Trump's campaign to challenge the results of the election. We have a 11th hour gambit, gambit, gambit being uh, pulled by the Trump administration about Section 230 and his... Last-ditch effort to try to affect that statute. And, because it's never too early, we got a 2024 primary poll. All that, and a discussion with one of our favorite guests here on the show, the one, the only, Money Man, Business Insider's own, Dave Leventhal. But first. We spoke with four current and former U.S. intelligence officials who confirmed for us that yes, Christine Fong was a suspected Chinese intelligence operative, that there was a sweeping counterintelligence investigation that focused on her. This sounds like a real spy story. That is Bethany Allen Ibrahimian of Axios, who gets to be the party star today with her scoop exclusive suspected Chinese spy targeted California politicians. 
And this is a pretty good one. We don't get a tremendous smoking gun, as in somebody is definitely compromised or there's proof that she extracted some tremendous national security. But rather, it does show the pervasive element that Chinese intelligence has toward local American politicians. And I do mean local to me. A lot of the names that we are about to talk about are from cities and towns within an hour driving distance of Oakland, California. It should come as no surprise that the national tilt of our country has been influenced by people out of this region. Our vice president comes from Oakland, California. And when she was a candidate for president of the United States, she shared a stage with a name for whom is very prominent in this report, Eric Swalwell. Indeed, this now suspected Chinese spy had a relationship with Eric Swalwell, although not romantic or sexual. We'll get to those allegations in a second. But according to Axios, she did put interns in Swalwell's office. She facilitated that process. She was also omnipresent at various different national gatherings for local and regional politicians, including a couple mayor's conferences where it seems that a few city leaders might have gotten intimately involved with this woman. So, who is she? Her name is Christine Fong. And she initially came to America as a student of Cal State East Bay. That's in Hayward, California, just a touch east of where I am out here in Oakland. It was there that she became very, very prominent in the Asian Pacific Islanders American Public Affairs Group. That's a national organization that encourages students to get involved in civic affairs. She did the same with the Chinese Student Association, wherein she became the president. And it was through those organizations that she began to become an omnipresent participant in local Northern California politics. Among the bold-faced names that she interacted with was organizing an event for Tulsi Gabbard and making contact with now Congressman and fairly influential progressive one at that, Ro Khanna. She apparently was involved in Ro's first attempt to get into the House. But again, the person that she spent the most time with was Eric Swalwell. And let's take a real quick beat here to say that for Swalwell, the idea that his name is now connected to a Chinese spy might very well be a good way to clear the air. Literally. Here's the last time that we spoke about Eric Swalwell. Chris, so far, the evidence is uncontradicted that the president used taxpayer dollars to ask the Ukrainians to help him cheat an election. Scholars to this day will argue who indeed dealt it. Was it somebody in Chris Matthews' hardball studio, or was it 
Eric Swalwell cutting one loose and having it resonate throughout the Capitol. But while embarrassing, that's not especially politically damaging. It's not like ridiculing the man who would eventually go on to be president of the United States for being an old, outdated politician who needs to shut up and pass his power along. I was six years old when a presidential candidate came to the California Democratic Convention and said, it's time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans. That candidate was then Senator Joe Biden. Joe Biden was right when he said it was time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans 32 years ago. He's still right today. If we're going to solve the issues of automation, pass the torch. If we're going to solve the issues of climate chaos, pass the torch. If we're going to solve the issue of student loan debt, pass the torch. If we're going to end gun violence for families who are fearful of sending their kids to school, pass the torch. Vice President, would you like to sing a torch song? I would. <laughs> I'm still holding on to that torch. By the way, that was the same debate that Kamala ripped into Biden. The West had something to say that night. Holy smokes. So Fong becomes entrenched with Swalwell when he's still a council member for Dublin City, California. That, again, just east of where I am in Oakland. And it was his rise to prominence and in 2012 becoming one of the youngest members of the U.S. House that really began to uh, uh, cement Fong's interest in him. Indeed, in January 2015, Swalwell is assigned to a seat on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, serving as a lead Democrat on the subcommittee for CIA oversight. That puts him in a gigantic uh, uh, position of, of importance throughout the Mueller investigation and the Ukraine investigation. Indeed, That was what he was talking to Chris Matthews about when he may or may not have tooted. Fong was a bundler for Swalwell. What's a bundler, you ask? Well, let's bring in our money man, Dave Leventhal. And a bundler, by definition, is somebody who is not giving a politician money directly themselves, necessarily, although many bundlers do. But they're they're kind of bag people, okay? Quite literally, they're bundling money. They're going around getting money from people, putting it into a bundle and delivering it to a politician. Now, bundlers are most common at, at the highest levels uh, of government or running for office. So presidential bundlers, for example. Donald Trump used them. Joe Biden used them. Most presidential candidates in modern history have used them. These are these are sort of super fundraisers uh, who serve a informal role for the candidate, uh, but are big boosters and are able through their power and influence to get their friends and their countrymen or whatever it may be to give money to the person that they support. So that that's your thirty second thumbnail yeah. definition of, of what a bundler is. Thanks for doing my job, Dave. Stay tuned to the podcast. We have a conversation with business insiders. Dave Leventhal about this and a few other money-related issues. But one thing's for sure. Fong was, was, was you know, bringing operational funds into Swalwell's career. In fact, Axios does point out something that many of you might be immediately thinking. Somebody that is now suspected to be a Chinese spy grabbing a bunch of money for a politician. Was all this money legal? As of now, there is no evidence of illegal contributions, but one might suspect in 
a bit of a news desert as some of the other big stories of the day recede, that this will be something specifically Republicans will want to poke their nose into. But here's probably the biggest thing. Fong facilitated the potential assignment of interns into Swalwell's offices. In one case, an intern recommended by Fong was placed into Swalwell's D.C. office. A current U.S. intelligence official confirmed that intern's placement. There's also some evidence to say that Swalwell kept Fong close because she's part of the reason why he got into D.C. in the first place. A former congressional staffer from the East Bay says that Swalwell's 2012 debut, his big upset win, was partially because of high Asian American support. That meant that somebody with direct connections to that community and specifically its business leaders was worth her weight in gold. That's the biggest boldface name in this story. But you know me, friends. I gotta get into some of the dirt. Indeed. Christine Fong, who is a young, conventionally pretty woman, allegedly, according to this story, engaged in sexual or romantic relationships with at least two mayors of Midwestern cities. So she certainly made her way far from the coast, far from the fog-draped hamlets of Northern California, made her way down to the meat and potatoes Midwest. Two stories. At a 2014 conference in Washington, an older Midwestern mayor from a, quote, obscure city, unquote, referred to Fong as his girlfriend and insisted the relationship was genuine despite a clear age difference between Fong and himself, according to former Cupertino mayor Gilbert Wong. I mean, how much does this guy, Mayor Wong, former Mayor Wong, want to bury this dude? (laughs) That he put his name on the fact that this guy's like, oh, he was really, really old. And he very much believed he was actually dating this girl. But here's the sassier one. Fong also had a sexual encounter with an Ohio mayor in a car that was under electronic FBI surveillance, said one current United States official. When the mayor asked why Fong was interested in him, Fong told him, She wanted to improve her English, the same official said. So U.S. intelligence has on tape somewhere this little sesh, this little car sesh fogging up the windows. And then this poor sap, this poor sap. Asking her, and I don't know if it's sad or if it happens before or after coitus, asks this Chinese spy, why are you interested in me? A 
and she hits him with because I want to learn English better. These simp vibes are so powerful, they register on the Richter scale. The FBI was on to Fong around 2015. It was at that time, despite the fact that she had planned to travel to Washington, D.C. in June of 15, that, well, she ghosted. I guess she got word that her cover was blown. She went to China and she has not made contact with any of the who's who of Bay Area politicians since. By the way, this is the second such scandal of Chinese intelligence targeting California politicians during the aughts. Senator Dianne Feinstein apparently employed a Chinese spy in her office. Here's what I know for sure. Number one, Eric Swalwell is going to face a lot of questions up to and including whether or not he is going to retain his position on his House Intelligence Committee. And secondarily, we're going to find out who this SIP mayor is. There's just no way that we're not at some point going to have the name of this mayor. And, oh man, it's just going to be so embarrassing for this guy. Why do you like me? Oh, come on, man. Oh, you want to learn English? Here's an English phrase for you. Please don't friend zone me. I'm the mayor. If there's one thing that I know for sure, 100%, is be it on my live stream, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young, be it on my newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com, or right here, the podcast, politicspoliticspolitics.com. Throughout this entire elongated election season, I have gotten not one thing wrong. Wrong! Oh. Well, if that's the case, then I should probably go ahead and initiate... Wrong! Wrong! I think it's a good idea to mess with Texas. Wrong! Bop, gal, dang it. I always forget. You don't mess with Texas. And apparently that also includes the 2020 election. Uh, Texas has now sued, and that is Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton specifically, has sued the following states, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, saying that their decisions to alter their election rules around the pandemic essentially invalidate the votes from Texas. And so therefore they should be barred from voting in the electoral college. 
this seems to be something that is a bit of a long shot. It's also interesting that Nevada and Arizona are not included in here. But it's one of those lawsuits that is about the decisions made before the election and not necessarily the voter fraud or alleged voter fraud that would happen afterward, which to me makes this a bit of a more specious lawsuit. And some observers have indicated that it is unlikely the Supreme Court will even hear it. Hey, you know, Donald Trump loves safe harbor. Wrong! So yesterday, December 8th, is the safe harbor deadline. Now, to be totally honest, and this is kind of an embarrassment considering the, the, the 2000 recount was like the most formative element of my young political life, but I had I was not aware of, of, of the safe harbor deadline. Essentially, this is an election milestone that is in federal law, but not in the Constitution, saying that if you got a problem with the results, you gotta get at least traction, if not resolution, by December 8th. And at that point, we're moving on. There is some uh, rumors that they're, you know, part of the Trump legal strategy, which they have out and out said they're not going to abide by the, the, the safe harbor deadline. But some of the courts, including the Supreme Court, seem to be taking this a little bit more seriously. So we will see what happens here. But it appears that when you listen to this on December 9th, there will be one more legal precedent for courts, including the Supreme Court, to consider. Who knows if it'll have a major effect. But that's not the safe harbor I was talking about. I'm saying that Donald Trump loves the Internet's safe harbor. Wrong! Oh, no, no. He definitely hates that, too. In fact, he hates that the most. He hates and And for those of you who are unaware, safe harbor or Section 230, as it is referred to, is the reason why social media can exist. It's the difference between social media and a newspaper. If anything runs in a newspaper, the newspaper is responsible for it. Same goes for television or radio. The reason why the most heinous possible stuff can show up on Twitter, Twitch, YouTube is because they are protected by Section 230 that says their liability does not begin until they've been notified about the odious content and then they take it down. This has become a stick for which conservatives uh, and some liberals have looked to beat social media with to say, we'll take this away unless you operate uh, with less of a heavy hand in terms of content moderation the latest and possibly last ditch effort by the Trump administration is to include a termination of Section 230 in the most recent National Defense Authorization Act, which he is calling for the House to veto. 
And in summation to this parade, you really want to hear a 2024 New Hampshire Republican primary poll right now, don't you? Wrong! Well, too bad you're going to get one. If Trump is included, it is Trump 57%, Romney 7%, Haley 7%, Pence 6 Cruz 4 Trump Jr. 3 Rubio 2. If Trump is not included, and this is probably the more interesting one, Pence 25%, Trump Jr. 14%, Haley 12, Cruz 10, Romney 8. All this is according to the New Hampshire Journal. But that is the triumphant return of the... Hooray! Folks, we got some really cool stuff coming up for you. I got a little gift for you on Christmas. Special thing I've been working on with a friend of mine. And uh, I think you guys are really, really going to like it. And it's just a little a little give back to show you uh, how much your support, which gives me a living and gives me the opportunity to not only do this show, but also continue to develop new projects for which you might also be interested in is important to me. Look, TakePoliticsSeriously.com is how I make my living. And your support has been so intense and insane uh, over this year that uh, I really do just want to give back. So I'll keep a little bit of mystery around it, but know that that's part of it. I mean, of course, the big... The big thing that really your financing uh, uh, goes the extra mile on is the fact that I'm going to be traveling many miles out to Georgia so I can cover these runoff elections. Indeed, we're also going to have a couple uh, professors from the state of Georgia to lay out not only the contours of this race, but also of the history of the state of Georgia, including why they got so many crazy laws. Why are they with the runoffs and the different primaries? It's confusing. We're going to get to the bottom of it. And it's all because of you. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you go. If you're at the $3 level, you get two bonus episodes. I don't normally pimp them here on the main show, but I do think that Mondays was a good one. I honestly think that Donald Trump's rally in Georgia over the weekend was possibly his last. And I play you guys the clips to, to illustrate my point. It is an audio walkthrough of quite possibly the end of an era in terms of politics. And you can only get it at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our guest today is the senior Washington correspondent at Business Insider, but you might know him as our money man. 
Dave Leventhal. Welcome back to the show, Dave. Mr. Young, a pleasure to be here with you. All right, let, let, let's get right into it because, you know, you are, are obviously always uh, in the middle of things out there in D.C., but you are specifically somebody that has such a, a great keen eye on the money flow in Washington. And normally this is kind of when those news stories dry up, except for the fact that they really haven't. <laughs> like, it seems like the the election ended and the fundraising around the election, at least for our, our, our two lead characters, has just kind of continued unabated. Well, yeah, it's the Christmas season right now, but uh, pretty much everyone in politics uh, who is actively running for something or trying to defend their winning of something, uh, they're in a taking mood right now. So Donald Trump is is first in line for this. Uh, He he is the Christmas king of taking, and he's (laughs) doing that because he's got... Um, he's got an opportunity to raise and already has raised hundreds of millions of dollars from people who, in many cases, probably don't care what they're giving to, so long as it's going to benefit Donald Trump in one form or fashion. So you may, if you're on Donald Trump's lists or you know people who are, you're getting dozens of emails and text messages every week from Donald Trump's campaign. So even while Donald Trump has effectively zero chance of becoming president of the United States for a second term, all this money that he's raising, uh, he's doing so uh, under the auspices of him still having a chance and fighting a legal fight, even if only a tiny fraction of this, Justin, is actually going to go to anything that resembles a legal fight for him remaining president. Most of this money is going pretty much one of two places. Number one, it's going to go to a new political action committee that Donald Trump has set up, which he is ostensibly going to run after he's president of the United States. And it can be used as this big swampy slush fund. Uh, The money can kind of do whatever Donald Trump wants it to do with very few restrictions. And the rest of the money is going to the Republican National Committee. So that's kind of long and short of it. But yeah, there's plenty of other folks too, including Joe Biden, who are still raising money, uh, yeah, you know, well, with well, this hold crazy on, hold on. situation, but near, not nearly to the degree that Donald Trump is. Yeah, because uh, I do want to get to Biden in a second, but I, I want to key in on Trump for two things, because my follow-up was going to be whether or not there were any rules on the money that is coming in, and it doesn't sound like there is. Uh, uh, the, the, the second question is, if this is going in part to the Republican Party— then that does seem, at least if, if we're trying to look for tea leaves amongst all of these stop the steal, we won this big uh, rhetoric on where Donald Trump wants to go post-presidency, it seems like being a gigantic cash cow for the party is you know, a, a, a fairly valuable position to be in as an ex-president. Your second point first, Yes. And if Donald Trump has any serious prospect of running for the presidency in 2024 and attempting to pull the old Grover Cleveland and win, then lose, then win again, having money lining the pockets of the Republican National Committee, particularly when he knows full well that there are other Republicans who very much want to run for president in 2024, that's not a bad play on his part, okay? And it solidifies the fact, at least at this point in time, that the Republican Party is the party of Trump. Uh, it's the Trump party. So for that to change, something major will happen. And I don't think Donald Trump has 
any desire for that to change anytime soon, whether he's the president of the United States or not. Now, to your other point, yeah, um, this money is going to a place that would perhaps be surprising to some donors uh, if they read the fine print of where their $10 or $100 or $1,000 donation is going. And that much of this money that any donation is going to right now, when you give to Donald Trump and you respond to one of his solicitations, that it's going to this new political action committee called Save America PAC. And Save America PAC, as I mentioned, is a leadership PAC, which has fewer, far fewer regulations and rules governing how that money can be used compared to Donald Trump's own re-election committee. So the rules are different. And really, this is a matter of not so much that, that the, the rules are, are lax across the board, but the rules are different depending on what kind of committee you set up. This may sound technical, but the practicality of this is pretty significant. Donald Trump is funneling all this money into a new type of political money vehicle that's going to give him a heck of a lot more flexibility for how he wants to use that money come the time he's no longer president of the United States, or for that matter, right now, as we speak. You mentioned Biden before. Uh, I saw an announcement from him saying that because the Trump administration was not uh, uh, initiating the proper transition procedures that he was going to have to fundraise it himself. Uh, I, I didn't quite know exactly how that worked. And then the Trump administration did start initiating some of the transition procedures. So uh, clue us in how much money has Biden raised in his post-election efforts. So there's three kind of corridors of money here for Joe Biden. And we'll go through them quickly here. First of all, his campaign committee, which still very much exists, is still raising money to some degree. I would expect by the end of this year, post-election, and, and we only have partial numbers at this point, but post-election, he'll probably raise uh, well into, I would imagine, the tens of millions of dollars uh, for his political committee, for his presidential committee. And that money can be used for campaign purposes. If Joe Biden decides to run for re-election again, that money ostensibly could be used for those purposes. And yeah, if there's any legal fights to be fought and Joe Biden wants to pay for it out of his own campaign committee, he can do it using that kind of money. So that's number one. Number two is his transition. And there's a separate committee that's set up for transition activities. And you can only give, uh, you know, into the thousands of dollars, not tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars for that purpose. But uh, plenty of people are going to give to that so that Joe Biden can run his transition operations for things that are not being taken care of by the government itself. And there's all different types of arcane rules that govern all of that. And I will not bore you <laughs> or your listeners with it. But suffice it to say, you can raise money for that. And people who may want to cozy up to Joe Biden and the people in his nascent administration, that's a wonderful vehicle for donating money to. Now, number three is the inauguration. Now, this is going to be in 2021, of course, about as different an inauguration as we could possibly imagine. We don't know all the details of whether Joe Biden is going to have the breakfasts and the brunches and the lunches and the dinners and the coffees and the balls and all of the trappings of a standard political presidential inauguration. Now, uh, I think if you are a betting person, you can bet that is going to be severely reduced and Joe Biden is... Uh, indicated that much of it will be virtual and virtual in the sense of what he did with the Democratic National Convention and that many of the inauguration activities, such as they are, 
are going to take place not necessarily in Washington, D.C., but in other parts of the country as well. Now, are there still going to be people on the National Mall? Will there still be a parade? Chances are yes in some fashion. And definitely Joe Biden is planning to put his hand on the Bible and get sworn in on the uh, on the Capitol stairs, uh, on the Capitol balcony. But uh, in the meantime, there's plenty of money still to be raised for whatever this thing looks like and however it goes off. And very importantly, Joe Biden has made the decision that he's going to not only accept contributions from individuals, people like you, me, and 300 million other people in America who may want to give to Joe Biden's inauguration, but corporate entities. And this is very controversial because Joe Biden has been critical throughout the campaign of corporate political influence in 20 or 2009, when Joe Biden was inaugurated as vice president under Barack Obama. They didn't take corporate contributions for the inauguration. They actually made a big stink or a big deal about not taking money from special interests and corporate influence uh, peddlers and all that kind of stuff. They changed that, uh, at least to some extent, in 2013 uh, during Obama's second inauguration. And then the floodgates opened with Donald Trump and he took money from anyone pretty much uh, who they would give it to. So bottom line, it's notable that Joe Biden has decided to take corporate contributions up to a million dollars, Justin, from lots of different people or corporations, I should say. But, you know, corporations are people under the law, right? Indeed. Uh, And they're going to take it from uh, at that level. And I, you know, reached out to about. 60 different corporate entities for a recent story to put the question to them. Hey, are you going to take are you, are you going to take this uh, invitation? Are you going to, if Joe Biden lets you donate money to his inauguration? Several said yes, just straight up. And that includes Bank of America and Ford and Affleck and a couple of others. And about two dozen others said, well, we haven't decided yet or we're not going to say. And others just simply didn't get back to me. So the will is there. The interest is there. And I suspect when we finally get some numbers and I'll I'll get quiet here in a second, but (laughs) we're going to talk about millions, even tens of millions of dollars of corporate contributions going into Joe Biden's inauguration coffer at a time when he's got a brand new administration coming in and lots of people hoping to influence it. Well, Ford better pay like he did like a like a sponsored content video for for uh, an as he had announced electric Mustang in like the middle of the campaign. So so they should they should definitely pony up at least just to pay the man his fair share. <laughs> Uh, uh, that that's that's fairly fascinating that that this is going to be a gigantic money thing. And I would imagine that when you say all the balls and coffees and dinners and lunches and brunches and, and you know, snacks and apple slices, that traditionally every one of those stops for a president coming in is a gigantic, massive fundraising opportunity in a normal oh, world. Sure. Right. And in the short term and the long term. So the way these things usually go down is you can buy tickets, you can become a sponsor and for your $10,000 or your $100,000 or whatever the price tag is for the thing, you get to you pay the money and then you get some incredible amount of access pretty much on day one from the new president becoming the president. So not a bad time if you are very, very wealthy to slap down some money, get into all these events, get to meet the new incoming president or in this, you know, his wife or the vice president or people who are going to be high ranking officials in the administration. Uh, when we talk about the Washington swamp and, and let's put aside Donald Trump's version of it or what he thinks it is, that this is sort of the height of, of swampiness. OK, yeah. you've got 
lots of people with lots of power and lots of money all getting together. And, and yes, this is a national affair. Of course, people all across the country of all means are watching it. But the people who are truly in the room or the back rooms or the places that are not on camera and and, and really living it up during this absolutely incredibly important Olympiad period of time are the people who are really, really paying some serious scratch in order to be there. And so your sense now, if you were a betting man, do you believe that we're going to get uh, uh, people on the National Mall watching Joe Biden or is it just going to be Joe Biden up there on on, on the balcony getting sworn in? I, you know, I, I think you and, and of course, I'm I, I have no insider knowledge no. Uh, specifically about the logistics, uh, because frankly, I don't think it's been decided yet. And uh, all indications from the Biden campaign is they're still reviewing their options and trying to figure out how to do this safely. So given that, is there a way to hold an outdoor event safely where it's not going to turn into one gigantic honking COVID-19 super spreader event? Yes, there is. I think that's been proven. And and there have been plenty of outdoor events that have gone off uh, quite safely all throughout the country for all different reasons. The question now is, how many people are you going to have on the mall? Uh, how wide and far are people going to stretch down the mall? Are we talking hundreds, like a Joe Biden drive-in rally? As yeah. He kind of innovated uh, toward the end of the campaign. You're not going to get cars driving on the National Mall. So I want that. That's it. what I want. That would let be cool. Him, let him be drive really, really the cool. cars on the mall and do donuts I, afterward. I think the Park Service would have uh, a, a couple of questions about that, especially <laughs> after they spent a ton of money redoing the National Mall the past many years. But, you know, are we talking hundreds of people? Are we talking thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands of people? Uh, we don't know at this point. And that's the big question right now for the Biden campaign and, and the people working with them to put this event on is to what can they do that's still going to be big and still going to allow this to be a, a singular kind of event, but at the same time to be one that is safe and, and not resulting in some crazy amount of people catching the coronavirus, especially at a time where here in Washington, D.C., like plenty of places all across the country, the numbers are going the wrong way. Things are spiking. They're going up. People are, are being hospitalized at a greater rate. And and as sad as it is to talk about, people are getting very ill and they're dying at a, at a higher rate. So this is not what anyone wants to happen. And certainly Joe Biden doesn't want the first thing to happen in his presidency being a whole bunch of people getting sick at his inauguration. That that's, would be a, a true that's, disaster. Yeah. That's my bet. My bet is that it goes as virtual as possible or, or there's not a lot of people out there because I think that would be that'd be very curious optics for him uh, if, if there was not just a smattering of people out there. Uh, last question on this, and then I want to switch to some other stuff. Uh, politics is a copycat league. Whatever happens up top tends to happen down ballot. Have we seen other candidates, whether or not they are? Uh, running for anything, just taking the lead of the fact that this remains a very strife-ridden time in our political consciousness and have taken the initiative to send out emails and raise money? Like, is this just uh, uh, stretched wide throughout politics or is it still fairly centralized through Biden and Trump? I mean, I'm, I'm laughing because, yes, I, I, I think the... the um most aggressive, how, how should I best say this? The, the most aggressive political opportunists out, out there, especially <laughs> on the Republican side, are absolutely, and, and I, I you know, could go through my email inbox and, and probably pull you about 20 examples of, of Republican members of, of Congress, uh, congressional candidates, people who are very closely aligned with Donald Trump saying, support Donald Trump, 
do the right thing, give money and, and back Donald Trump in his fight. And, and where's the money go to? Well, it's not going to Donald Trump. It's no. going to their account. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you know, your hundred dollars is, is going to support Donald Trump by supporting the reelection prospects for, you know, some congressman in Texas. So, all right, fine. And, and some people don't care. They, they see this all as one big effort to help Donald Trump. And if you're helping Donald Trump's friends, then of course you're helping Donald Trump. So that's, that's the logic behind it. But yeah, this is just a, a huge opportunity for everyone to raise money. And definitely there are other Democratic political groups and there are nonprofit organizations that also, too, are using the strife and using the chaos of the moment and the uncertainty to line their pockets uh, even more than they have been during the course of this year when we're talking about a $14 billion price tag on just federal level elections alone, Justin. That's wow. from the Center for Responsive Politics. And that, yeah, hey, look, every four years we talk about this is the most expensive election in the history of the country and it's never been this pricey. Well, okay, sure, fine. This one blew everything out of the water in a way that we've never seen before. And that really all has to do with Donald Trump, the money coming into his operation and the money coming in to uh, certainly the Biden operation in the Democrats. Uh, they they ultimately were the ones who raised more money as a result of the way things were going down. Yeah, just to, to not put too fine a point on it, whenever you have conversations about money in, in presidential elections, it seems like it's like, oh, well, a hundred million dollars more than it was last time. Oh, my God, I can't believe it was over a hundred million dollars more. This does on a meta level, like to look at the trends from space. This seems like just an exponential growth in, in the kind of money that was spent. Right. We roughly doubled it up from four years ago to this. Year. Wow. Oh man! All right. Uh, uh, so let's let's switch off polit or, uh, presidential politics for right now. I, I do want to get your thoughts on a story that we touched on earlier in the podcast, and that is this Axios scoop about a Chinese spy uh, that is now being called as such by uh, some of our intelligence agencies, and specifically her relationship with Eric Swalwell. While that is certainly going to roil over the next few days, one of the more salient questions that I think are, are going to be asked is when she was a bundler for Swalwell, exactly how legal was the money that she was bringing in and will there be a review of that? So if, if people are just reading these stories going forward, can you give us a lay of the land of what is legal and what is illegal when it comes to foreign contributions? Yeah. So, you know, a couple of things to note. And, and I, I think, first of all, to your point, uh, yes, absolutely. There's going to be inquiries and people are going to be looking into this at a very, uh, very deep level informally and, and perhaps formally uh, as well. So we'll, we'll see where that plays out uh, first and foremost. But when it comes to this notion of bundler, uh, now we get into, all right, well, who can bundle and who can't bundle? Um, so if you are a foreign national and you don't have a green card, and that's very important, uh, then you cannot give money to a political candidate. And we have numerous examples of where people have gotten into hot water or have been convicted even of crimes of making illegal political contributions uh, because of that. Now, it gets a little bit into the gray area if somebody is not 
a is a foreign national or may not necessarily fit into the parameters of what would be kosher for making a political contribution, but is helping a politician in, in one form or another by either raising money or helping them in a political way. So these are going to be important details to fetter out in this situation. And this does potentially get into, you know, a, a criminal realm, not to say that this particular situation yeah. is in any way a, a criminal act or whatnot, but questions of this sort definitely get into what what would be criminal statute of illegal foreign participation in politics at the broadest and illegal foreign contributions at its most narrow. So in other words, this is not something that the Federal Election Commission necessarily is just going to, you know, hit somebody with a $10,000 fine for. You, you could be looking at the Department of Justice uh, starting to ask a, a few questions, possibly, but uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty early yet. Yeah, yeah. And that the one thing about the bundling element that that kind of stuck out for me is that she appears uh, uh this this Christine Fong uh woman was the 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 most valuable as a connector to people. And uh, uh if if she, you know, is connecting the money pipeline to a place that might not be legal, then that's going to be a question, but obviously we will let that reporting and uh enforcement play out. By itself. Let's switch over to Georgia real quick. Uh, one or sorry, two races that are actively raising a lot of money because there is a lot at stake. There is this is the the epilogue to the massive 2020 election extended edition Lord of the Rings uh, a version that we had uh, is uh, David Perdue versus John Ossoff and Kelly Leffler versus Raphael Warnock. And it appears that David Perdue is heading back up to D.C. for a big old shindig uh, today when this airs for uh, uh, some some reinforcements. Yeah, well, first of all, yeah, you've given me visions of like Stone Mountain turning into Mount Doom and you know, <laughs> a ring getting thrown in. But uh, we'll, we'll leave that there. We'll uh, see. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not even for sure that we'll be done with the election season after January 5th. I, I, I think yeah. we're going to find a way to extend it another six months. You know, the, the, the 2024 election will just it, it'll be the 2020 election with some more stuff added onto it. I mean, exactly. it, it's, uh, we're, we're, we're getting into truly crazy season right now. But, yeah, we have these two special elections or rather uh, runoff elections uh, in Georgia. They're special, certainly in their own right. But I think, they, uh, yeah, to... are, one of them is a special runoff. But and they had a jungle primary rule, but it wasn't a jungle pri or maybe it was a jungle. Uh, anyway, yeah, there, there's one, a lot one, of confusion. One is, one isn't. Uh, exactly. The bottom line is that you put your one foot together. in, you put your one foot out, you know, <laughs> do the hokey pokey and you shake it. And all lots about. of people shaking it all around. Yeah. Uh, and the, the candidates trying to shake cash out of the pockets of many people, too. <laughs> you mentioned the fundraiser that that's happening. We reported uh, a couple of days ago that uh, got a copy of an invitation and published it. And uh, I, I was looking at the invitation, and this is for Senator David Perdue and his effort to win re-election. I noticed some of the names on the invitation, and they look very familiar. And they look familiar because I recognize that they were federal registered lobbyists. And, uh, of course, the next thing I did was look up who they are currently lobbying for. And it just so happens that together, these six lobbyists, they represent uh, 10 companies that David Perdue has personally invested money into this year. And well, why is that important? Well, because David Perdue right now is in the midst of a stock scandal crucible. 
And there have been federal uh, inquiries into this, and there have definitely been a whole lot of people who are very curious as to whether his many, many trades, and we are talking hundreds and hundreds of stock trades, he is the most prolific stock trader among any member of Congress right now, whether they uh, were in in any case uh, not quite up to snuff. And one particular example is back in February when David Perdue bought a whole bunch of Pfizer stock. Pfizer, of course, is one of the companies that is developing a COVID-19 vaccine. And lo and behold, a couple of weeks after David Perdue bought the stock, Pfizer came out and announced that it was developing a COVID-19 vaccine. And Purdue, a couple of weeks after that, sold his stock for what appears to be a profit. So uh, the fact that these lobbyists are having a fundraiser for him and uh, in you know doing so at a time when David Perdue didn't show up for a debate with his Democratic opponent, John Ossoff, uh, this has definitely uh, raised a few eyebrows, I think it's fair to say, and filled my email inbox up with uh, lots of messages from people who both love and hate David Perdue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting to see where the fault lines are in this election and for both Purdue and Leffler, who faced insider trading allegations throughout this COVID pandemic. Uh, it seems like that is the 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 fault line that both Democrats really want to hit. They they want well, to they, talk about yeah. that a lot more than they want to talk about what you would assume nationally is or what is nationally the story, which is the Democrats could take the Senate. It, it seems like like on the ground there in Georgia, they want to talk about the corruption and not necessarily whether or not Chuck Schumer will be happy about the outcome. Well, it, it's a yes. And, you know, I, I should note that David Perdue says that he has done nothing wrong and uh, that that everything has been above board. So you can take him at his word or, or not. But this is a Georgia Senate race with the most national of implications. And it's sort of the epitome of a trend that we've seen for, you know, several years, many years, you could even say, but is really kind of hitting a crescendo right now which is that almost no Senate race these days are a statewide affair. They're a national affair. That's certainly true for any Senate election of of any consequence, which might be close, or you want to knock off an incumbent uh, who would be a a huge prize to do so. Think Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. That certainly didn't go the Democrats' way. Oh, my God. No, that was just just an incinerator. Just Just a cash incinerator from the... Pod save a blanket, boys. Just setting up a gigantic <laughs> pipeline of money falling into an open bonfire. But that's exactly the point, Justin. Is that you have so many of these races, and this was Kentucky, this was Maine, this was South Carolina, it was Texas to, to some extent. It was definitely Arizona, where you had people from every place in the country but the state where the race was being run that were giving crazy amounts of money. And we had in some cases more than in some few cases, well more than 90% of the money that was coming into these Senate races coming from any other state, but the one where the race was being run. So it just goes to show that these are really truly national races. And even though the local issues or or what the candidates are talking about that would affect in this case, uh, Georgians, uh, you know, that doesn't matter to most other people around the country. They care about whether the Senate's going to be run by Republicans or the Senate is going to be run by Democrats. And for those who have not been following this blow by blow, the Democrats need to pick up both of these seats in order to get a 50-50 tie 
in the Senate that will be broken by the president of the Senate, who so happens to be the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. So she would be the tiebreaker vote anytime there was a deadlock. Uh, and that throws the power, uh, the balance of power to the Democrats. Where do you think we're at in this money boom right now? Like, are we at the beginning? Are we at the crest? Or are, are we at, at the end? Because not, not to go back to that, you know, get Mitch or die trying thing, but that that raised the 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 GDP of most countries after Ruth Bader Ginsburg <laughs> died, uh, and and then you know uh, to to finance a a race that was probably by all conventional wisdom unwinnable from the very jump. Uh, do you think that this kind of small dollar donation, this online small donor donation, is going to continue to grow before it ebbs any? I I do. And, and there could be things that that would uh, that would prove me wrong. And uh, I, I think the biggest thing that could happen is that there is some sort of meaningful campaign money reform, either standing alone as a bill uh, the next two years. And this would only happen if the Democrats control the Senate. It would be unthinkable if Republicans control the Senate. So that would have to happen. Or wait, hold on. Wait, wait. The, 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 because the Democrats right now have the advantage in the small money donations. Do you think they would curtail it? Yeah, I do. And, and and that's something that I, I think would be in the most likely scenario, there would be money reform that would come as part of H.R. 1, which is this flagship bill that Democrats proposed in the House two years ago and plan to propose again as sort of the first out of gate foray into the new congressional session. And to the extent that money would be reined in, Unclear at this point, but there are definitely some ambitious rules and especially dealing with outside money. So money that's going to super PACs, these groups that can raise and spend unlimited amounts of money and the Democrats are using to a greater degree and uh, arguably a more successful degree than Republicans even are. And, and that that's unthinkable compared to where we were 10 years ago when yeah. super PACs first got legalized, when Republicans were just way ahead of the game. So, you know, the, look, the Democrats... They, they they will always make the case that, well, look, we hate this big money, but we're going to use it because <laughs> we can't unilaterally disarm and da-da-da-da-da. You know, but we wrote a story a few months ago about Joe Biden and all this, uh, the outside organizations that, have, um, that were supporting him, super PACs, nonprofits and whatnot. And they, they took in ultimately tens upon tens of millions of dollars worth of untraceable secret political cash. We can't tell you where it came from because they don't have to tell you. Now, they could have taken the same amount of cash and just disclosed it, but they chose not to because they didn't have to. So that, that you can agree with that, you can disagree with it, but that's just the fact of the matter. And there are definitely are some Democrats who really want to see the system change, but they do feel that they had to play by the rules and give Republicans absolutely no advantage because even a tiny advantage would be an advantage too much in, in their fight to get Donald Trump out of the White House. So that's really the state of play that we saw in especially late 2020. And uh, in the meantime, the Senate race in Georgia, well, it's, it's a free for all. So I expect anything to go from either side. Well, here's what I would like everybody who is listening to this show to do right now. If you want to treat yourself or a loved one who enjoys this show, then go and get them a subscription to Business Insider because uh, we're, we're Leventhal and his gang of, of merry men and women are, are doing just amazing stuff. I, I, have, I have loved 
uh, uh, my, my subscription. You guys have been killing it lately. Uh, and, and Dave, you are, you are among it, but, uh, the entire team, just, uh, uh, a plus so far. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, well, thank you. You are too kind. And, uh, I would just uh, add on to that if I may, that, uh, find me on Twitter, send me a DM and, uh, if, if you say that you listen to the show, uh, can can maybe hook you up with a, a friends and family deal too. Look at that! Look at that! Go and come on, everybody! Go and go and get that friends and family discount from from Dave Leventhal, uh, because he's great and he takes his time and he's even more generous than uh, just being here and explaining the world of money to us. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Have a good one. And that'll wrap it up for us today. I would like to thank. Dave Leventhal, Senior Washington Correspondent for Business Insider, for joining us. Always great to talk to Dave. Somebody slide up in his DMs. Take advantage of that uh, that that subscriber thing, because like honestly, they're doing good work. Trust me, you know that I rip into journalists. I, I, I rip into the work. They've done good stuff. I've actually really liked uh, their little uh, beachhead they're setting up in the content wars of Washington, D.C. We're not in D.C. We're in Oakland, but uh, we operate because of you, including our Titanic $10 tier. Including. I love you, TNT. Dr. G, the Jen, Kathy Mack, Headphones Neil, onward to Georgia. Captain Bunzo, Jay Sulu, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle Age Mike, what happened to Tex? Get a bucket and a mop. Cujo, Idris, Jacob Wilson, Berkeley Steven, Justin Egan, Dotcom Junkie, Diana Sunny Smiles. Hi, Diana. Tempest Fugit. Jason with Magnolia Delta Credit Card Processing, which just rolls off the tongue. Uh, Rob, Martin, Esco, Moen, Government Unfiltered. Andres, Archie, Darren Kitchen of Hack5. Adam. Jacob, Olin and Angela, DL, Kyle, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Miranda Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Richard, just another pilot, Frozen Summers, J Pink, Andrew, and James. You want to join their ranks? You head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com. But until then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying. Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more, they're talking about politics. But this, this is the only program that dares talk about Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.